Hello, everybody. This is uh, Charlie with the podcast To Hell and Back. Um, and this is uh, Wednesday, May 17th, and it's 4 o'clock in Eastern Time Zone in the United States. And I'm talking again for the third week um, with Melanie Harned today um, about uh, trauma and uh, PTSD and treatment of PTSD with uh, the treatment protocol that she's developed um, based on DBT and based on prolonged exposure. Um, and we're going to get to that in just a couple minutes. And um, I just wanted to make a couple comments first. Um, first, I want to remind you again, if you uh, have listened before, you would have heard this the last couple times, but I want to say that on May 30th and on June 6th, um, Natalia Garcia, who is a, uh, you know, a graduate student uh, approaching internship, um, she's at University of Washington and works with Melanie um, and has been through the practicum for DBT Linehan's, uh, in Linehan's lab. Um, and uh, she's going to talk to us about her own trauma, her own loss, uh, traumatic loss, um, uh, between six and 12 months ago when her two-year-old passed away in the middle of the night for no obvious uh, reason. It was a perfectly healthy kid and it was just a terrible loss and she's going to graciously and courageously talk with us about what that's been like for her to be coping with that and I think we're going to have a lot to learn uh, from her. Um, I also wanted to just say because I sometimes don't do this and maybe I haven't done it enough because I want to make it clear to everybody who's listening that I do this with uh, with the support also of NEABPD, um, Advocacy Organization for Borderline Personality Disorder, uh, with Perry Hoffman, who's the president, and she and I cooked up this idea of the podcast, and she supports it uh, in terms of uh, our, making sure it gets archived onto my website, charlieswenson.com, every week. Also, Melanie Harned's ta- uh, podcasts here are, will be on her website um, the ones she's participated in, and hers is uh, uh, dbtpe.org. Um, you know, today we're going to more get into how exposure is done, because uh, Melanie has talked about a number of things. Uh, I just want to make a few comments about what she's talked about so that it might interest you in looking back at the previous two podcasts. Um She's talked a lot about the nature of trauma um, and how trauma is defined when you look at the definitions or diagno- in the diagnostic manual for PTSD and what PTSD is um, and some of the factors that bring it about and maintain it um, that I think is really useful to understand that, uh, that one of the things that maintains it is avoidance. She's talked a fair amount about that, avoiding uh, memories of what's happened, avoiding uh, cues or uh, reminders of uh, a traumatic incident, um, and the fact that uh, paradoxically avoiding it while you feel better at first because you've avoided the pain of being reminded or going back into it, that it actually um, maintains the problem, the PTSD problem, because you're not... Um, you're not challenging the beliefs that came about as a result of a traumatic incident, the beliefs in the dangerousness of things in the world or the lack of competence of the self to avoid danger or things like that. So um, as a result, she's talked uh, some about how the important thing um, ultimately is to kind of go down the middle of the um, traumatic incident, go with mem- remembering it, going into it, and uh, confronting the uh, cues and reminders rather than avoiding them. And today she's going to talk in more uh, detail about how you you do that in treatment. She has talked some about orienting to this treatment, so we've already got some ideas about why you would do it, what the point is, and what some of the um, reasons to do it, some of the research-based reasons to do it. Um, And I want to just share a couple things that I think have been uh, real nuggets of information um, 
one of them is uh, she was talking last time about that there is a kind of a natural recovery process. If one goes through a traumatic incident, um, that the natural process of recovery would be to be uh, aware of it and uh, remembering it and expressing it and going through it in a way, processing it, um, letting it happen um, in the mind and and going at things that are reminders of it rather than staying away from it if you can do that. And I think it is natural when we go through traumatic events to tell somebody and to talk about it if somebody's willing to listen. Some of the people that get in trouble are in environments where nobody is interested in listening or doesn't know or, or you've gotten used to not telling people anything. And therefore, that natural recovery process doesn't happen. So the treatment is really trying to rekindle um, a stalled process in some ways. I'll let Melanie comment on that uh, afterwards if she wants, if there, if that isn't the way she would put it. Um, and um, oh shoot, um, she, oh, she addressed a really important question last time that. Um, a lot of us have wondered about, which is uh, if, if it's traumatic in the first place, and then to go back and go into it, remember it, go at it rather than stay away from it, isn't that re-traumatizing um, is a very common belief. No, I mean, people, you know, just people on the street will say, no, I'm, I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to dwell on that. Why go back into it? It's already painful enough. Um, and that's sort of humanly understandable, but there's a real problem with that. Um, and what Melanie was saying is that someone who really has PTSD, their brain is already getting assaulted by the memories, uh, maybe in one form or another, in intrusive thinking or images or memories or nightmares or something. It's, it's coming at the person anyway, out of out of their consciousness. And so it isn't like remembering it is a new thing. It's just that if you remember it and go through it systematically and process it the way she was talking about, that you have a chance to actually not just keep going through it day after day, month after month, and year after year, and have it be as <coughs> assaulting you as you fight it off, but actually have a chance of going into it in a way that helps go through it and really helps uh, change it um, in, in a process that once you get into it is not as long as one might imagine, even for something that's lasted many years. So I just wanted to make that point. It's very encouraging, and yet um, it's challenging to do. So I'm going to turn this over to Melanie and ask her to talk to us about uh, how you go forward with doing the actual exposure and, and take it anywhere else that you want to, Melanie, and I want to thank you for coming back a third time. I'm very grateful that you've been willing to do this um, out of your time and expertise and just giving people a chance to hear about it. And um, oh, and one, one last thing is if anybody does have any questions during the time she's talking, this is the third and at least for now the last time we'll be talking about this, um, you could email me during this next uh, near nearly an hour um, if you have a question and I'll see if I can work it in um, if not I'll try to get back to you with some comments um, so my email address is the, the letter C dot Robert dot Swenson at gmail dot com okay so Melanie thanks again for coming and um, let me turn it over to you yeah, thanks for having me back. I'm happy to be here. Um, so yeah, our thought today was to really sort of talk through some of the mechanics of how you actually do exposure and what it means and what it looks like and how it works um, for people actually uh, doing it. I know we've talked about exposure, obviously, the last couple of podcasts in different ways. And then on the, on the one hand, it sounds like a, a pretty straightforward, easy thing to, to think about what it would look like um, and sort of like, you know, well, approach the things you're avoiding, right? Um, and at the same time, it's actually a reasonably um, complicated thing to figure out how to do exactly and how to do effectively to really um, sort of get the most benefit from it. So, um, so 
in general, one of the questions that came in from the last podcast I just wanted to address right away was this question of, so can we do um, this treatment that we've been talking about for things like social anxiety? Um, and just in general to make the point that exposure um, is, uh, the most effective treatment we know of um, in general for all of the anxiety disorders. Um, so it certainly um, is effective for social anxiety disorder and panic disorder and obsessive compulsive disorder and specific phobias and um, and it, it works, exposure in general works very well for any type of anxiety disorder but what we're going to focus on today is um, PTSD in particular. Um, and so when we're thinking about using exposure specifically for PTSD um, and trauma, there's usually two types of exposure that um, we are doing in a PTSD treatment. Um, so at a high level, just to say what the two types are first, um, one is what Charlie was referring to uh, a minute ago. It's called imaginal exposure, um, which is the type of exposure that has us really going back and thinking about and talking about um, specific traumatic events, um, things that have happened to us in the past um, that we are generally trying not to think about, those things that are popping into our minds anyway, even though we're trying not to think about them, and um, going through exactly what happened um, in a very systematic way that I'll describe, um, and that is imaginal exposure. Um, sort of doing it sort of in your imagination, sort of revisiting the trauma memory. Um, and then the second main type of exposure that we use is called in vivo exposure. Um, and in vivo means essentially in real life. Uh, so instead of um, focusing on uh, memories, we're focusing on things out in the world, sort of external um, <clears throat> situations or cues that we might um, be avoiding, people, places, things, objects, smells, that kind of stuff um, out in the world and approaching those sorts of things. So that is in vivo exposure. Um, so those are the two main types of exposure that we will um, be using for PTSD. And I want to just talk a little bit about um, the steps in doing each of those types of exposure and sort of how they actually look. I'm going to start with in vivo exposure because I think in vivo exposure, that in real life, things in the world kind of exposure is um, a little bit easier to think through as an example and um, is basically in every single uh, exposure treatment, no matter what anxiety disorder you're targeting, there's going to always involve some kind of in vivo exposure. So it's also kind of um, something to think through um, in a more general way as well. But when we're thinking about um, doing in vivo exposure for trauma um, and exposure in general, there's kind of four steps that I think through um, when we're trying to figure out what exactly to do exposure to and how to do it. Um, so the the first thing you got to figure out is you know, what is the actual cue? What is the thing that is being avoided? Um, and what exactly is the person afraid is going to happen if they um, don't avoid that thing, if they were to approach it instead? Um, and so when we're doing in vivo exposure, so for PTSD, there's usually four general types of situations or sort of categories of things we might consider trying to figure out if there are things in there that people are avoiding. Um, so one of those are um, what Charlie mentioned earlier, sort of the most direct link are specific things that remind the person of the trauma they've experienced. So very often um, people will be avoiding um, locations, so places where the trauma happened, um, you know, where they might have been living at the time, um, or if it happened in a public place, you know, you were mugged in a parking garage, people will be avoiding parking garages. Um, so different locations that are reminders of the traumatic event. This can also very often be people um, that are reminders of the trauma, um, people who uh, look or sound similar to perpetrators of trauma, 
um, you know, sort of people of a certain age or gender or cultural background or people who are bald um, who share uh, physical characteristics with perpetrators of trauma. Often those are um, people who are avoided. It can be sounds. Um, it can be sort of music that was playing at the time or um, different sounds that might have been present at the time of a trauma. It can be smells. Um, very often people, um, traumas involved some sort of alcohol, for example, um, and the smell of alcohol can be something that is uh, very distressing to be near that people avoid or, you know, certain perfumes or colognes or sort of other smells like that can also be trauma reminders. So all those kinds of things could be things that are kind of directly linked to the traumatic event um, that might be something to think about uh for in vivo exposure when we're trying to figure out what the cues are that we're going to target. So that first category is trauma reminders. Um, another kind of category that we'll think about is um, things that the person believes are dangerous that aren't objectively dangerous. Um, so, you know, a situation the person might be quite convinced if they went into it something terrible would happen, they would get attacked, they would get assaulted, they might die, you know, things like that, um, where the, the risk of those things happening is, is very, very low. So very often, for example, people with PTSD avoid going into crowds. Um, they believe crowds are dangerous. Um, driving very often becomes something that's viewed as very dangerous. Um, you know, there can be things like being outside alone or um, outside alone at night, um, you know, talking to strangers, um, all these kinds of things um, that might not be directly related to the traumatic event, um, but that have um, the person has come to believe are really dangerous situations um, for one reason or another. So that's kind of category number two. So things that the person, situations the person um, thinks are likely to be dangerous. Um, another sort of a category to think about in terms of figuring out what the person is avoiding from an in vivo exposure perspective. Um, when we're doing this treatment, we also will target things the person might be avoiding simply because they're depressed, um, not so much because they're anxious or afraid. Um, and that's because depression and PTSD really commonly go together. Um, and very often there are going to be things that people avoid doing, like going to social events or spending time with friends or hobbies. Like I, you know, used to really like to play soccer and now I'm not doing it anymore. Where sort of the reason that the people are not doing those things is more because they're depressed and not interested or don't have energy, um, as opposed to the fact that they're afraid specifically, but we can still treat those things in the same way. It's sort of getting people back out and doing them. So we might also consider putting um, those kinds of situations, uh, things that people are avoiding simply because they're depressed, um, as something that we, we might target in this treatment. Um, you mean, and then, Melanie, you mean so yeah. avoiding if somebody has suffered from, uh, if they've been depressed, under certain circumstances, they're avoiding the circumstances that would make them depressed, that would remind them or, or give them some degree of depression, and then it's almost like having a PTSD of having depression. Is that what you're saying? Um, not quite. So, you know, we could have a different podcast at some point about behavioral activation treatment for depression, but essentially right. this is that treatment, right, which is when people get depressed, they end up um, not engaging in activities that might actually bring them pleasure, which might actually improve their depression, um, and instead sort of withdrawing, isolating, getting less active, doing fewer things, which is part of being depressed. Um, and so this would look like getting back out in the world, activating, doing more things with people or activities and things that might bring you pleasure, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and so then the the final um, category, the final thing um, that uh, something I actually adapted and added into the DBT prolonged exposure treatment um, are things that might cause the person to have um, very intense but 
not justified, unjustified shame. So unjustified shame, unjustified is sort of a concept from DBT um, that we use to describe emotions that don't actually fit the facts of the present day, um, which doesn't mean they can't be understood, but that they're sort of not, um, they don't fit what's going on in the present moment. And so for a lot of the clients who um, we treat with this treatment, Shame is a really, really common, painful, intense emotion, sometimes even more common than fear, which is what people often think about with PTSD. Um, But shame is really pervasive and really uh, impairing for a lot of people um, who have experienced trauma. And so we also will target um, situations and cues that bring on this kind of shame, shame that doesn't fit the facts. Um, And and shame that is unjustified is um, shame, you know, things that you might experience shame around where there actually isn't any risk really of you getting rejected or criticized or kicked out of something, which is um, sort of what the expected outcomes are um, for shame. So for examples of what kinds of things often trigger shame that isn't justified, um, things like sharing some personal information about yourself with someone, somebody who's supportive, like telling them a little bit about your background or, you know, one of the most common things or one of the most powerful things that we can do exposure to sometimes for people is if they actually share a little bit about their trauma history with a um, supportive friend uh, or family member. Most most of our clients would predict that if they were to tell somebody about what happened to them, even at a very high level, like I was abused as a child, that um, that, that person's going to judge them, criticize them, not want to be their friend anymore, look disgusted, you know, all sorts of things people would predict. And so we can also do exposure to um, things like, like that. So sharing some information about yourself that's genuine, that feels vulnerable, um, that will very often bring on unjustified shame. Um, as well as another common thing that uh, brings on unjustified shame is being imperfect in some way, sort of making mistakes, showing up late to things, sending an email with a typo in it. Um, one of my favorite unjustified shame exposures in this moment is sort of going to like a, a coffee shop or a restaurant and ordering something and then saying, oh my gosh, I made a mistake. I totally didn't mean to order that. Can you please change it and change my um, hot coffee to a, an iced coffee? I, I messed that up. And finding out what actually happens when you make mistakes and what people actually do and how they respond um, and whether you do get sort of criticized and judged and all of the things that people typically expect. Um, so I could say lots more about unjustified shame, but just to back up and just sort of summarize for the moment. Oh, wait, Melanie, before you get yeah. out of this one, um, what I, I may have missed this. What's the relationship between... This uh, the idea about an unjustified shame, which I think is understandable, and the example's great. But but what's that have to do with PTSD? Yeah, um, I think so. Most of the people that we treat with this combined DBT and and prolonged exposure treatment um, have experienced interpersonal traumas. So very often, um, sexual abuse or assault and physical abuse or assault. So interpersonal kinds of things. Um, often starting in childhood, um, but occurring across the lifespan. And that kind of trauma, that sort of, um, you know, things being done to you by another person, often repetitively and recurrently, um, very often causes shame. People mm-hmm. feel like um, it makes them a bad person that these things were done to them. They often believe that the reason this kind of trauma occurred was because they are bad, they are disgusting, they are evil, um, you know, that all of those kinds of beliefs very commonly come along with um, certain kinds of uh, trauma, particularly interpersonal trauma and childhood trauma. Uh, and so that emotion is often very um, prominent in people's sort of experience. And the the newest diagnostic criteria, just to say briefly for PTSD from the newest version of the um, DSM, uh, it, it includes a criterion now for negative emotions like shame and guilt um, and disgust as mm. part of the criteria for PTSD that didn't used to be in there. That was new, but sort of increasingly recognized that um, 
there's much more going on for people with PTSD than just fear, um, which is always there, but there's a lot of other emotions. And, and for our population of clients, shame is um, a huge one. So sort of targeting that, um, we do it in a variety of ways, but one of them is through this kind of in vivo exposure where they're actually out in the world and, uh, you know, approaching things that bring up this kind of shame and finding out, um, ideally, that people aren't rejecting and criticizing and judging them in the ways that they're predicting. Mm. That they're not mm. getting um, confirmation that they're a bad person, basically. They're getting the opposite information back. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the link. Hopefully that was a little clearer. Yeah. Well, you know, after you say that, I'm realizing that the four categories that you said um, the first category seems like it's things that um, you're trying to avoid having the memory, the mm-hmm. reminders of the trauma, um, mm-hmm. and you're trying to stay away from the memory as if you could kind of like carve out a zone in your brain that you're not going to approach. Mm-hmm. And then the next one was avoiding things that will bring about fear because yep. things are dangerous. And the third, it seemed like it was uh, avoiding things that will bring depression because mm-hmm. um, depression is dangerous. And the last one, to avoid sh- things that will bring about shame because based on the earlier trauma, shame is now also dangerous. Is that a fair way to think of it? Yeah, I think very much so that that when we're doing in vivo exposure, we will design in vivo exposure tasks often to very specifically target different emotions. So if shame is a particularly big, um, you know, painful uh, emotion that people are having, then we're going to really try to figure out ways to target that with exposure. If it's mm-hmm. fear, we're going to go after fear. If it's, you know, guilt or disgust, mm. you know, um, that we can set up our exposures to be more targeted at a specific emotion that is really causing a problem for sure. Mm-hmm. And I think the way you thought through those categories is typically what those emotions are that will get um, captured by those different categories. Mm-hmm. It seems so, like another thing that people avoid with PTSD or just seeming in life experience tells me this is um, people who've had certain bad traumatic experiences hate to be surprised. Mm-hmm. Um, like they have a startle reflex that goes with it that, you know, uh, they don't, they never find it funny or fun to have somebody sneak up and surprise them. Right. Things like that. Uh, it's yep. actually traumatic almost. It just seems like it's traumatic to some people. So that would be something also like avoiding surprise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which could be unexpected things happening, sounds or touch, right? So I've certainly had people doing exposure who mm. were in a, right. um, you know, committed romantic relationship where they just, you know, jumped out of their skin every time their partner put their hand on their back unexpectedly or something. And where right. we, we ended up doing exposure to that with, you know, sort of getting a family member involved to help out with sort of unexpected touch so they could get used to that and realize it's not dangerous and have less of that kind of startle response to it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's certainly something that can be done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, okay. so that was a lot of, oh, go ahead. No, nothing. I just okay. appreciate that. Yeah. So, um, so there's a lot of information with the main point being the first step is, you know, you have to figure out what are they avoiding. And that's sort of just some ideas of sort of things to think through, different categories of things that people often are avoiding. And, um, you know, we sort of generate a list of all those kinds of situations uh, and put them together in what we call a hierarchy, an in vivo hierarchy, which is just, you know, for all of the things that we're generating that people might be avoiding, um, you know, we then have them rate from zero to a hundred on what we call the subjective units of distress scale, SEDS scale for short, which is zero from not distressed at all to 100 being the most distressed you've ever been in your entire life. And we sort of have them rate how much they expect each of those things that whatever we've identified that they're avoiding, how much do they expect um, they would be distressed if they were to approach those things. And we put them mm-hmm. into sort of rank order in a hierarchy. Um, and then the second step is to begin actually approaching um, some of those things. And so usually with the in vivo exposure, we're starting with tasks that are somewhere in a sort of moderate distress level. So from that 0 to 100 scale, we usually start with things that are somewhere around 40, 50, 60 um, SUDS ratings, somewhere in the middle. So we're not uh, starting at the very hardest what thing. 
um, mm -hmm. and we, uh, you know, pick a couple really? of those things and have them start um, um, approaching them. And so, okay. one so of I'll the, just, yeah. you know, critical things Take about this... Wait, I think we need... Somebody okay. is uh, talking, and we yeah, can hear it, yeah, so yeah, it's yeah, not you, muted. I wonder if, if you're aware that you're talking okay. to somebody, we can hear it. All right, I'll check it out. But yeah, I'll get something. I'm just, I have about a half hour left of this podcast, and then I'll, and then I'll get it. <laughs> um, it's, it's Charlie Swenson. He, I always listen to this podcast. <laughs> hello? Yes, hello? I'll be done in a little bit. Okay. <laughs> All right. Go, go ahead, Melanie. Okay. Yeah. So somebody, if you're listening again, you were just talking about an oven, we can hear you. If you can put yourself on mute, we would appreciate it. Um, okay. So the second step is um, to start approaching those things, starting with something moderately distressing. Um, and then, you know, the point is here is this is very planned. Um, you know exactly what you're going to approach. You know when you're going to do it. You know where you're going to do it. You know how long you're going to do it for. It's not something you're sort of... Um, sort of randomly, you know, deciding to do something all of a sudden, usually it's a very planned strategic thing. So you, you put yourself in contact with whatever it is. So, um, you know, you go to a place where you can smell um, beer or you get a can of beer and you open it and you smell it, right? Okay, so that's your exposure task. Um, and um, then you sit and you do that. And, and sort of the third step is while you are actively in contact with whatever the cue is, um, to avoid avoiding. Um, so to really, um, this is where mindfulness can be really helpful from DBT, but where you're really focusing your attention on the cue, um, on the thing that is um, the focus of the exposure. And and, you know, paying attention to what um, it smells like, if it's smell or what it looks like or what it sounds like or, you know, just really sort of focusing your attention on it and sort of being careful, um, you know, noticing if your mind's wandering, noticing if you get distracted and you start thinking about your grocery list or um, you start dissociating a little bit or, um, you know, there's sort of a lot of sort of internal things that can happen that are avoidance in the middle of exposure, shutting off emotions, like trying really hard to suppress emotions is a common one. Um, and then there's, you know, sort of more obvious avoidance things that can show up, like people uh, covering their eyes and not looking at it or turning away from it or moving away from it or, you know, stopping the whole thing early and things like that. Um, there's lots of different ways people avoidance can creep in in these things, which is totally understandable. Um, and at the same time, our goal in exposure is to have as little avoidance going on as possible in the middle of the exposure. So really paying attention to whatever it is. Um, and then the final piece here, the final step, is um, the reason we want people paying such close attention and um, is because the goal of this whole thing is um, what we often call corrective learning. Um, we want new learning to happen. So we want you to learn that if you sit there and you are smelling um, the smell of beer, um, and beer is a traumatic reminder because the person um, who raped you had been drinking beer and the smell is linked to that, for example, then you're doing exposure to the smell of beer. Then what we want you to learn is if you sit there and you do that, whatever the bad thing is that you're afraid is going to happen, which is often that I'm going to, you know, the, the trauma is going to happen again. The same thing is going to happen somehow. I'm going to get raped if I if I smell the um, smell of beer or I'm going to get so upset and so emotional that I'm going to totally lose control and I'm going to fall over on the floor and I'm not going to be able to do anything or um, I might hurt myself or I might, you know, sort of all sorts of feared outcomes that people have. And what we want you to do is just sit there and um, pay attention to it and find out whether the bad thing actually happens or not. Um, and that is the goal of the whole thing. It's sort of a way to think about this uh, in vivo exposure, sort of like real-world experiments. Like, you know, we, the person has a hypothesis, essentially, of like what, what they think is going to happen, um, that there's some danger, they're going to lose control, um, you know, they're going to run away, you know, whatever it might be. And then they do the exposure as a way to actually test out that hypothesis. 
and find out if it's true. Um, and of course, we're picking exposure tasks and designing exposure tasks where we have every reason to believe that the information they're going to get back is going to disprove their hypothesis. They're going to find out that they don't need to be so afraid of this thing. Bad things don't happen um, in the way they're expecting them to. Or if something bad does happen in some way, um, that it's not as terrible as they thought it was going to be. It was not a total catastrophe and that they were able to cope with it. Um, because sometimes, um, you know, what people, if, if what you're afraid of happening is that you're going to get raped, then of course we want you to learn that that's not actually going to happen, um, that that's a very low probability event. But if what you're afraid is going to happen is that you're going to feel sad and you're going to cry, which is a very common feared outcome. Um, people who really dislike sadness or really dislike crying, that, that can be what they're afraid is going to happen. And so that very well may happen. Um, in fact, it might be effective if it does, right? And so um, what we might learn from exposure is that the bad thing, quote unquote, did happen. I did cry. I was sad. And that it wasn't awful. And I was able to tolerate it. And it didn't last forever. And it didn't mess up my life. And maybe I don't need to be so worried about crying anymore. Um, so whatever it is that the, the sort of feared outcome is, um, we want them to take in the information about whether or not it actually happened and how bad it was if it did. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the final piece there of actually completing an in vivo exposure task. I'm just thinking, Melanie, that um, I had a, <clears throat> when I was a kid, I was, I guess, about in fifth grade, and I had a, a very good friend in my neighborhood, I guess one of my two best friends, and uh, he had a tragic event, um, I wasn't there at the time, though I knew very well where it took place. It was at a bean field where we used to pick beans during the summer to make money. His dad owned the bean field, and um, and he was at the bean field, and he was hanging out, and he was leaning against the fence, and just a complete fluke happened. They were moving irrigation pipes uh, with a crane, and it, it irrigation pipe went vertical and it hit a an electric wire and it hit the fence at the same time and conveyed electricity to the fence and uh, he and he was electrocuted basically his father tried to save him and couldn't stop it and couldn't get him off the fence it was just this terrible thing and i remember getting an account in some detail of it by somebody and it's never left my mind it's you know, and even talking about it right now brings back up you know, some of the memories of the experience of what it was like. And I was just thinking about how this, how this might have become PTSD. It didn't become, I don't think I developed PTSD, even though I still have a strong reaction to it when I think about it. And I don't know if you would consider that PTSD, but after this many years, but, um, I didn't, uh, I didn't start it, but I was thinking what might have developed PTSD, I'm trying to imagine would have been like I won't go out in a field anymore or I won't mm-hmm. go out near uh, bean fields specifically or I won't lean against a fence. Or it, it, it would be that if, I, if somehow I got into a process of avoiding the reminders of that event, um, that's what, that could be the beginning of PTSD. Exactly, yeah. Stayed away from electrical wires in general and you know, all kinds of things like that. Um, that would be the kind of avoidance that if it um, really took over and became a pattern and chronic would definitely increase your risk for PTSD. Yeah. So probably most of us walk around with things like this in our memories. Yeah. um, Somewhere from our lives, but that, but, but many, and they're still charged memories, but that's not the same as, as uh, developing PTSD. Exactly. Yeah. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about how we deal with the memories in a minute, but maybe it's a good segue to just say that, you know, when we are targeting the actual trauma memories um, with imaginal exposure, the goal of that is never going to be, because it's not possible as far as I know, to get people to have no emotions anymore about some horrific thing that happened Mm. to them. Mm. Um, You know, people were always going to, if you think back on some traumatic event like you're describing that happened to you, um, it's not as if, you know, we would expect you to not have any emotion about that. Um, Of course, you're still going to have emotion about that. Anybody would. The issue is 
how intense is it and how disruptive is it in your day-to-day life and is it interfering with your ability to do things that are important to you? Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, thinking back on something terrible from your childhood and still having some anxiety show up or some sadness show up or, you know, some anger show up or whatever it might be is totally normal. Um, mm-hmm. Even, you know, at the end of this treatment, we are still absolutely going to be expecting people to have some emotions for sure, mm-hmm. um, just at a lower intensity and less likely to um, interfere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let also, me that, the example I gave you was an example of the kind of thing you said in one of the previous podcasts that it didn't happen to me right. and I wasn't even present to see it. Mm-hmm. But by hearing about it and knowing where it had been and knowing who the person was, that in itself really was intense. Um, Absolutely. So that's sort of that vicarious um, right. experience of trauma, that learning about something that happened um, mm-hmm. can still absolutely be traumatic. Mm-hmm. So let me talk a little bit about imaginal exposure, um, mm-hmm. which is in some ways kind of the meat of this treatment because it is what we are doing in the therapy sessions. Um, so that in vivo exposure that I just described, uh, things in the world, people um, are doing that on their own as homework between sessions, so not with their therapist. Um, and what the therapist is doing um, with clients in the actual sessions is this imaginal exposure, which is, again, just the exposure to um, specific trauma memories. So if I would walk through those sort of four steps again of how we do exposure, but this time using the example of imaginal exposure, um, again, the first step is to figure out the cue. What is it that the person is avoiding? And in this case, what trauma memories are they avoiding um, thinking about and talking about? Um, And, you know, there's sort of a process we'll go through early in the treatment of kind of identifying what traumatic events the person has experienced and then sort of, you know, for many people that I work with, there's, there's unfortunately lots and lots of trauma memories that one could choose from, both different types of traumas they've experienced at different times in their lives and different situations as well as um, very often recurrent traumas. So, you know, childhood abuse that uh, occurred for 10, 12 years um, with many, many, many possible memories to choose from of that one overall type of trauma. Um, And so we have to sort of narrow it down from, you know, all of the potential traumas a person has experienced to um, we usually, in this treatment, try to identify the three specific events that bother them the most still now um, and sort of causing them the most distress now. And those can be um, the ones that are coming up most often in the sort of PTSD kind of way, like those intrusive memories showing up as you're going about your day or the nightmares that you're having or the flashbacks that you're having. Um, So things that are sort of most present and most distressing or um, things that are sort of clearly most linked to current um, difficulties in your life. So if you're having a lot of difficulties with um, in your marriage, for example, because it's very hard to have any kind of physical intimacy, if we know there's a specific trauma that is causing that problem, that, that fear and difficulty with physical intimacy, you know, that might argue for it to be in our top three most distressing because we can link it very clearly to something in the present moment that um, is causing problems for you. Um, but in general, we're trying to figure out specific events, um, specific traumatic events. Uh, and then the client gets to choose which one they want to start with um, for the imaginal exposure. And um, most clients actually choose to start with the one they find to be most distressing. Um, and it's a sort of helpful in some ways if we can do that um, because often when we start with that most distressing traumatic memory um, what happens is it uh, has this sort of generalizing effect so the hardest one if we can really get that one loosened up and less distressing for you it can often have the effect of making other ones that were less distressing also feel a little bit better um So we might not have to spend as much time on other ones after that. But at the same time, some people obviously would prefer to not start with the hardest one first, and it's totally up to the client to pick. But we get it down to a specific traumatic event. We know what our cue is. 
Um, and then the sort of second step is to approach the memory. So the way that we do that um, is in the therapy session, um, we figure out exactly sort of what the story is going to involve, sort of what the start point will be for where they'll start describing the event and what the end point will be where they'll stop describing it. Um, usually it's we start it, if we can, right before anything really scary or bad started to happen and then we end it sort of right after when there's at least out of imminent danger, if we can. Um, and then the you know, we have a person close their eyes um, and describe the event out loud um, in the present tense, which means sort of describing it as if it's happening right now as opposed to using the past tense. Um, and just walk through exactly what they can remember um, and describing, you know, all the external things they can about what was going on around them, where they were, what they could see, um, what they could hear, that kind of thing, what was sort of going on in the environment, what the people around them were doing, um, as well as what their own internal experience was at the time of the trauma. So what emotions were they having? What thoughts were they having? What physical sensations were they having? Um, and describe all of that in as much detail as they can um, from sort of that beginning to end point um, and uh, then repeat that and, you know, keep telling that story. Um, and we do that, you know, repeatedly in a session. Usually it's for about 30 minutes or so, um, however many um, repetitions you get through in that amount of time. And um, and we're recording it um, so that people will have an audio recording of it to listen to on their own, um, also as homework between the sessions. Um, and so that is sort of the mechanics of how imaginal exposure is done. And the therapist is present and usually checks in, you know, every five minutes or so and asks for one of those SUDS ratings, how distressed are you right now from zero to 100, uh, obviously offers encouragement and support and reinforcement and, um, you know, helps people through the process. But often the therapist is pretty quiet um, and sort of more an active observer witness support person um, as they are going through telling the story. Um, And so that's sort of the approaching of the memory. And often we stick on one memory for um, many weeks in a row. Um, The first memory people do often takes about, you know, I'd say eight, nine, ten sessions or weeks. Um, and then after that, once that one memory has gotten a whole lot easier to think about, then we might move to a second memory if there's more um, and sort of keep going from there. And further memories usually don't take as long. They're usually only three or four sessions after the first one, but um, we might go through multiple memories like that. But So we're approaching the memory by talking about it out loud and describing it in detail. Um, and again, the same thing. Uh, so the third step being avoiding avoidance. So, you know, this is obviously an incredibly hard thing to do, to, to not only think about it and talk about it, but to do it in a lot of detail. And, and it's, everybody has urges to avoid in lots of different ways, whether, again, it's sort of distracting or thinking about other things, stopping, talking, leaving out some of the details that are hardest to focus on, um, you know, dissociating, you know, all sorts of things that can happen, trying not to have emotions as you're doing it, um, things like that. But we try to get help people over time do it with as little avoidance as possible so that they can really, again, just kind of mindfully pay attention to the details of the trauma and what actually happened to them. Um, so that that fourth step of new learning can happen. Um, and when we're doing imaginal exposure, the new learning, um, one of the most critical pieces of new learning um, of the actual exposure part is that I can think about and talk about my trauma because most people, um, their belief is that they absolutely cannot do that. Um, they can't tolerate it. Um, they will lose control and they will get worse. Um, they will totally fall apart. You know, all these kinds of beliefs that people have about what would happen if they actually talked about their trauma. And, you know, sort of the fundamental learning of imaginal exposure is that this is a memory and memories are not dangerous. Um, it is uncomfortable. It is unpleasant. But the memory itself cannot harm you. Um, and you're able to think about it and talk about it. Um, and that learning is critical. 
Um, and a lot of the learning from imaginal exposure, um, you know, often people haven't let themselves really think in detail about what happened to them, understandably, and mm-hmm. and they haven't thought about the whole event from start to end of what actually occurred. And very often people's focus has just been on um, sort of certain moments of a traumatic mm-hmm. event. Um, and often those moments are the ones that are most painful to them. Those are very often my experiences. People are focused on the moments of a trauma that they think make the whole event their fault mm-hmm. um, or that they think are absolutely evidence that they are a bad and disgusting person. Mm-hmm. And those are the only events that they, th- the moments of the event that they think about or that come back in those intrusive memories. And they don't think about the fuller picture. They don't think about everything that led up to that and all the other things that happened in between and all the other signs. And so, mm-hmm. so part of what the imaginal exposure is doing is sort of really causing a person to have to think about the entire trauma um, because there's often a much fuller story here and a much bigger picture that needs to be taken into account to understand how it was that the specific moments they've been most focused on happened. Um, you know, it's really, this is very helpful to put it this way, I think, for all of us, because um, so many times if you say to somebody to do this or to enter into treatment to do this, uh, they'll say, I, I already do this all the time. Yeah. You know, I think about this all the time. This is nothing new. But what you're saying is that somebody can think about it all the time. In fact, they cannot not think about it. Um, and yet that doesn't mean they're doing this. Right. In fact, yeah. they're usually not. Most of us are not. Right. So, for example, somebody who um, was raped and in the middle of it, there was a moment in which they said the words, go ahead, about something. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's all that they've ever thought about about it. It's like, oh, my gosh, I said, go ahead. This makes it my fault. This is all because of me. And I like all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Um, and when you get in there and you do imaginal exposure and you think about it from beginning to end, you know, as that example, you know, person sort of realizes like, no, I told this person no, like six times mm-hmm. before mm-hmm. that. And mm-hmm. I very clearly indicated I did not want this happening in all sorts of ways from the beginning all the way through. And there was only one moment where I lapsed from saying no. Um, and, you know, that's just sort of thinking about the sort of much bigger picture here and making sure we have that full um, awareness of exactly what did happen so that we can then, after imaginal exposure is done, so again, it's usually about 30 minutes, um, there's another part of the therapy session where we do what's called processing, um, which is really so now that you've allowed yourself to really think about this, what do you think about this now? Like, what are you feeling about this now? Like, what is it about this that um, is really bugging you? And mm-hmm. we just sit and we talk and we try to kind of sort through um, some of the beliefs that people have developed about this event. Like, it was my fault. I, you know, because in this one moment I said this one thing and I shouldn't have done that. And because I did, the whole thing is my fault. And then we sort of sit, sit back and think that through. Like, well, what do you think? Now that you see all these other times in that event where you said no... Now what do you think? Um, and sort of really try to help people shift some of those beliefs that have been keeping them really stuck and get a new perspective mm-hmm. about what happened to them um, and hopefully reduce some of the ways in which they're blaming themselves for it or they're viewing themselves as weak or incompetent for what happened or they're holding themselves responsible instead of the perpetrator responsible, which is super common. Um, and just kind of understanding what happened to them in a different way, sort of looking back on it now. And very often for people who have had childhood trauma, they, you know, they learn to think about it um, as a six-year-old or a 10-year-old or whatever it was, a very sort of different perspective. And, and looking back on it when they're older, they often will think about it really differently. Like, wait, hold on. I was small and I was six and they were an adult. Right. I couldn't have stopped them, you know, but as a kid, you feel like you could have or you should have. And, you know, it's sort of all that kind of um, ways of kind of sorting through the meaning that people have made of these events and really trying to shake it out and get a different sort of less um, less painful perspective on it. How, how important is the, I'm just thinking about these steps of um, in imaginal exposure, approaching the memories approaching uh, in vivo certain things in real life and but and then processing and um, because in the natural world if we're not in therapy 
about it, we encounter a traumatic event. And when I was saying earlier, referring to like maybe there's sort of a natural recovery process of, of thinking about something, expressing it, approaching it, and so on, there isn't necessarily processing in that. And I just wonder, I mean, if you did the parts of the treatment you're describing as the exposure parts and you didn't do the processing, what would get lost? I think it depends. I mean, I think there's absolutely still benefit in just doing the imaginal exposure by itself. It's going to decrease your fear of the memory. It's going to, you know, make you feel less like you have to avoid thinking about it, um, that it's dangerous, all that kind of stuff. Um, and for, for lots of people, simply by really thinking about the traumatic event in detail, um, they they naturally can also start to shift some of their beliefs about it. You can sort of look at it and be mm-hmm. like, oh, wait, I forgot about that part, or I hadn't really thought about all mm-hmm. of the ways mm-hmm. in which I clearly indicated non-consent. Um, and all by themselves can start to kind of see like, huh, maybe it's not really true that this was totally my fault. Um and sometimes people can do that all on their own, but sometimes people really need another person's perspective, and that's often sort of where, mm-hmm. you know, if it's therapy, where the therapist comes into play, or if you're able to talk to another supportive person about it, where it might be really hard for the, the person themselves to get, sort of see it differently right away, but another person might be able to offer a perspective that mm-hmm. um, hadn't occurred to them or uh, something like that that might help shift things even a little bit more for some of those um Beliefs that are really stuck, which are often the ones that are about negative beliefs about oneself. Mm-hmm. It's very hard for people to shift the thought that I'm a bad, terrible person all on their own um, without another person helping to challenge and contradict that and help right. them see so, it differently. So you can extend the work into processing of changing people's beliefs and coming up with a different narrative and re- accounting for parts that you hadn't been thinking about and making sense of that and that sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. Now, I want to ask you something before we get to the end. There's just so much to say. It's just This could be a nonstop podcast. Um, it just occurs to me. Maybe that's what this should be. Um, and um, because uh, I, we, I did get one question uh, from um, somebody who's listening, and it's related to some of this. It's it's on the edge of, uh, I mean, it, but so I, my guess is you'll have a way of answering this rather quickly. Um, it says, here's the sentence or two sentences. With phobic, this is someone who knows animal training. With phobic animals, we also use counter conditioning. So pairing a delicious food while doing the exposure, like a recording of thunder or something. Do you ever pair something really pleasant or rewarding? during the exposure task? That's a great question. Um, Mm. I don't typically do that um, during the exposure because, again, during the exposure, we want people to focus really on whatever the thing is um, Mm -hmm. that they're avoiding and just pay attention to that and learn something new just about that thing Mm -hmm. um, without trying to change it in one way or another by introducing something different into it as well. so generally speaking, if I'm thinking about trying to pair it with something positive, I'm going to use that as a reinforcer at the end of the exposure. So, you know, finish doing your exposure task and go, you know, what it would be for me is have a mocha um, <laughs> coffee afterwards or something, you know, like reward yourself for having done the really hard mm-hmm. thing, mm-hmm. Um, but not necessarily try to change the cue itself by linking it to a new thing. Um and that is a much could be a much longer, more theoretical conversation because yeah, I could get myself really around to thinking question. that that mm. is there could be a time and a place to do that for some reason as well. Mm. But most of the time we're not, and most of the time we're we're sort of linking those in as kind of a a goodie for yourself after having done something really hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is a different the fun, then the function would be different than counter conditioning. Yep. Exactly, it'd be reinforcement. Yeah. Well, look, we've come to the end of this um, three-session thing. I'm so grateful, Melanie. I really think that um, this is an enormous resource if people avail themselves listening to this. Um, Just people, unless they've been through training of this kind, um, they don't necessarily get such a clear explanation of how this works. And I think what you did today was really, for many people, this can serve to demystify uh, whatever they think happens in exposure, because I think people, whatever people think happens in exposure probably came from the movies 
or something they read somewhere. But um, but and, and I think it's helpful to hear you don't have to have a Ouija board. Uh, <laughs> you don't have to have fires going on and be out there at midnight in the middle of the night near graveyards um, or any other cultish activity. It's just a pretty straightforward though challenging and emotional process, but there's really a way to do this um, that people can use if they want to go into treatment or maybe people can use some things they've learned from you um, just if they want to think about, in a different way, think about the things that have been haunting them. So enormous service. Uh, thank you. I hope we'll talk again. I mean, we could always uh, arrange another one. I don't want to feel too greedy and and impinge on your time too much because it's uh, you've been extremely generous. Um, yeah, I'm really you. glad to do it, and I hope that it's been helpful. And I, I like the way of thinking of sort of demystifying the process. Um, it is both um, a very straightforward thing to do and also a very scary thing to consider. And so I think... Um, the more information people have about it, the more likely they might be to consider doing it if it sounds like it's something that could be useful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is pretty straightforward. So people, hopefully they'll get that. It's really like taking your child to the closet that they think there's a monster in there right? and like, looking at it. When you fall off the horse, you got to get back on. I mean, we all have all these things sort of that we that's think right. about that is essentially that's exposure. Right. Um, and that's what this is in a very systematic way. Well, look, um, so it's, it's time to stop and I, I'm, thanks again and I, um, I expect that, uh, I'm going to follow up with this with you personally, but also try to link together some things that have happened on the podcast, including these things to talk about what the applications are for people in their daily lives if they aren't in treatment or if they maybe want to get in treatment. Um, Great. so thanks a lot and yeah, I hope you. to see you soon. All right. Bye All everyone. Right. Bye. Bye.